Well, we finally come to the end of this study on the Great Commission. But to go back and review very quickly what we've said thus far, remember how the commission was given to the disciples to assure them of His authority, His power that reached across the earth to the farthest star. And that gave them confidence, whatever doubts or anxieties they had, whatever awaited them out in the world, they knew they went forth in the name of the Son of God. That's the beginning of the Great Commission. But our attention is turned primarily to the command. For He told the disciples, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then teaching them all that He commanded. It's interesting, in that original text, the only verb is make disciples. Go, baptizing, and teaching are participles, which of course means that they derive their force from the leading verb. Participles are not intended to stand alone. They always get their direction from the verb. And this simplifies the command, which is to make disciples. But the objective is to reach the world. That's always our goal. And to that end, we go, we baptize, we preach, we witness, we are sent with the purpose of seeing disciples who will in turn make other disciples until finally this gospel of the kingdom reaches the ends of the earth. And we've been addressing the question then how this is to be accomplished. And we've seen thus far eight principles that we believe are discernible in the way Jesus went about making disciples. Beginning with the Incarnation, when He became a servant. This involved taking up the cross in advance, a lesson which, of course, we learn as we look out upon a world so desperately in need of someone who loves them. And where that is evident, we'll never lack opportunity to make some disciples. But it involves the principle of selection. In the midst of this ministry of compassion, we look for those that want to learn. That's what a disciple means. And God brings them into our life in answer to prayer. We notice receptive hearts that are drawn to us. And it is our conviction that a few such persons are within the influence of every follower of Jesus. We develop the potential of these learners by being together. The principle of association, as Jesus stayed with His pupils, we must be close to those growing disciples around us. Bring them into the routine of our daily life, seeking ways for casual fellowship, arranging times for prayer and study of Scripture, some of this perhaps scheduled in small groups, along with some occasional extended periods of longer time together. But built into it is obedience. That's what Jesus expected. Because as they believed on Him, they committed themselves to follow Him. And we must follow Christ to learn of Him. And we need then to 
stress the practical aspects of this kind of faith, which will likely involve a discipline of devotion and work. And those with us, we can expose to situations that challenge their commitment and learn together to embrace the cross. In this ongoing relationship, Jesus was showing how to minister, that principle of demonstration, giving the disciples an example to follow. They could see His priorities, His values lived out. And they were understanding more about the meaning of personal ministry, along with, of course, uh, they were learning some of their own failures, just as in our case, we must share those as well as our success. With Christ, He was perfect, but we fall short. So we need not hesitate to share with our disciples our own need for more grace. But as we learn together comes this principle of delegation. Jesus gave them something to do, something that they could practice that was suitable to their own personality and their gifts. He'd give specific assignments. First duties were routine things that they could already handle, and they learned more and more demanding ministries as they followed Him. This required supervision. When you get out there and start working, you're going to make some mistakes, and those are going to be the means of learning more as you address them and find out where you failed and then correct it. So you need frequent times of review asking questions, working on character traits and attitudes that are unlike Christ. But when you notice their failings, be sure to affirm also their strengths, building up their own confidence. Not that you know everything, of course. Keep the focus on Jesus and let the Word speak. And that brings you to that principle of reproduction. When we come into the kingdom, we come as babes, just born again. But as you grow in His likeness, as normally you do, growing up as a child and you mature, after a while you usually get married and you start another family. And so it is in this most natural way in the physical world that this earth is populated. The same is true in the spiritual world. If we would just reproduce where we are. And this is a ministry that everyone has. There is no differentiation here of importance. We all are important where God has planted us. We all have the opportunity to make some disciples. And while some will have greater opportunities on a larger ministry, maybe even preaching like Billy Graham to great multitudes, and we can be grateful for that, when it comes down to the Great Commission, all of us have the same opportunity with a few people in the course of our life to live out the Great Commission and project in them also this vision of multiplication, dreaming with them about their role in the harvest and then anticipating that final reunion around the throne of heaven. But everything that I have said thus far would be meaningless unless we understood this final principle I call impartation. Jesus gave the disciples his spirit. Now in the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, it's about in the middle. I didn't want to wait till the end to introduce the ministry of the Spirit, the third member of the Holy Trinity. 
But I saved it here for the last, for the sake of emphasis. And I'm simply trying to say that what has been said thus far would never be effective, would never succeed in making disciples of Christ unless the Spirit of Christ was doing it. Now, this is no new teaching. We're introduced to the Holy Spirit in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis when the Spirit moves upon the face of the deep. We know God as the Father in His administration. We recognize Him as the Son in revelation, but we know Him as the Spirit in operation, in power. He takes the things of God and makes them real to us in the Word and then later in the living Word of Christ. And He does this in the same power and authority as the Father and the Son. But it's by the Spirit that that work is accomplished. When He had fashioned this creature from the dust of the earth, we are told, He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. It's interesting, the word breathe is the root for the word spirit. He spiritualized this creature. And that's why this man began to live and move and have his being in God. And the tragedy of sin was that that relationship with God that had been created by the Spirit was now broken. And so, deprived of that means of life, man was left on his own, struggling through all the vicissitudes of life. The Spirit was still active in the world. God still loved that creature He had made and was seeking to restore him. And all through the Old Testament, we see the evidence of God's Spirit at work to accomplish God's redemptive purpose, just as He is working in our world today. And it's the Spirit that is enabling God to lead His people into that promised place where finally He will reign over His kingdom. It is the Spirit that enables chosen people to fulfill particular ministries. Like we are told the Spirit came upon Joseph when he was in Egypt. Which is interesting. Why would that little detail be called to our attention? By this old pagan king. Well, of course, Joseph in that culture, in that time, was a man that God was going to use in bringing deliverance to his chosen people. And even Pharaoh could recognize that Joseph was different, and this was called to our attention because he could see the Holy Spirit in Joseph. We read how the Spirit came upon Moses later when he was leading the people. And when the affairs and administration was more than he could carry, God told Moses to select 70 men, and he would give these elders the same Spirit that was with Moses. This qualified them for that service. When they were to build the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. Again, we see prominence given to the Spirit as he came upon Bezael, who was the chief carpenter and architect, filled him with the Spirit of wisdom, 
so that he was enabled to construct this replica of the work of redemption that to those people was a very meaningful display of God's work of salvation. Everything about that tabernacle spoke of the coming Messiah and Savior. God doesn't read, leave this to just anybody that comes along. That architect, that carpenter, along with others, was prepared by the Spirit. Even the men that made the robes that the priest wore, we're told, also were given the Spirit of wisdom. Now, why would a little detail like this be mentioned? Those robes were typically long, flowing white robes. The high priest would have a more colored robe that he would wear on special occasions. But clothing themselves with the robe was a way of indicating they were putting on something that enabled them by that covering to minister before the altar. Because in our own worth, in our own merit, none of us, none of us are worthy. So the robe was a visible indication that we are dependent upon God. But the scripture also says they were told to wear bloomers under their robe, which is interesting. Why would they wear bloomers? Those people, those clothing uh, replicas would hang down below the thighs of their leg. And it would still cover them when they leaned over the altar. For nakedness was an indication of our sin. And God didn't want anyone to minister before the altar who was not completely clothed and thereby covered by that indication of another's worthiness. There's only one example in the Bible of someone offering a sacrifice to God that was acceptable in the sight of our Lord. Remember where that was? It's another one of those interesting details that are so prominent in certain places of Scripture. It's at the cross when we're told that Jesus was stripped of his clothing when he was nailed to that tree. He died naked on that cross. Nothing would be more blasphemous than to come before God and offer a sacrifice in your nakedness. But in the case of our Lord, for the first time in history, there was one among us, indeed one who represented us, who needed no covering. For by his own integrity, through his own perfect, blameless character, he was the Lamb of God without any spot or blemish. And as a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he offered himself up to God on our behalf. And yet, as we read in Hebrews 9.14, even the offering of the sacrifice without any blemish was by the Holy Spirit. When God works, He qualifies or enables the person to fulfill that assignment in the power of His Spirit. We read this again and again in different instances through the Bible. And it enabled them to be leaders at crucial times in the life of Israel. Saul 
was a person who had the Spirit and enabled him to give direction to God's people. The tragedy is, toward the end of his life, Saul turned his back on God and the Spirit departed from him. The same thing is said of Samson, who was a mighty judge, and though his character fell far short of what you would expect a holy person to be, for a particular time and reason, he was an instrument God used in bringing his people back to himself. But, as we know, tragically, the Spirit departed from Samson. He no longer had that strength that had given him by the Spirit. No longer could do the same old thing. And he brought destruction to himself. There's nothing more tragic than trying to do the work of God in your own power. And thankfully, God never asks us to do it in our own strength, never has. When God calls us, He enables us by His Spirit to do His work. I suppose the most prominent example of this is the prophet in the Old Testament who will declare the Word of God. In other ways, he's just like you and me. He has all the fallible uh, expressions of any normal human being. But when the Spirit comes upon him, he is so inspired that he can now perceive what God wants to communicate and is able to put it into words that can express accurately that message. So that when it comes through and is spoken and ultimately written, it comes through verily as the Word of God Himself. And that's why I always have this book on the lectern when I teach and often hold it in my hand when I speak because this is the witness of God's love to this world that is finally revealed so perfectly in His Son. I like to hold the Bible from time to time because it makes me think Jesus is standing right here with me. This is the Word of my God. And as the prophets had foretold, in the fullness of time, it was that same Spirit that came to the virgin planting the seed of the Father in her womb so that she conceived by that Spirit and in time brought forth God's one and only Son. This should not be surprising. The Spirit had been working from the very beginning to accomplish God's redemptive purpose. Certainly you would not expect the Spirit to be absent when God chose to clothe Himself with our very flesh and to identify Himself completely with us in the Incarnation. And it was the Spirit, we read, that led Jesus during His ministry. The angels ministered to Him in the desert, but the Spirit directed His steps. When He was invited to speak for the first time in His home synagogue back in Nazareth, remember how He turned back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And He began to read that morning, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He has anointed me to preach. And he finished reading that passage, and then he announced to that startled congregation, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's identifying his life now in the flesh with the work that the Holy Spirit had been doing from the beginning of time, announcing that his ministry of preaching and healing and proclaiming liberty to the captive, his ministry is in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That's why you see these mighty works. The Pharisees on occasion would look at these works unwilling to accept that they were of God. They ascribed them to Beelzebub, the devil. And when Jesus saw their unbelief, he said they were in danger of committing a sin that could not be forgiven in this world or in the world to come. What is that unpardonable sin? It's not murder. It's not adultery. Those sins are forgiven. What is that sin which has no means of forgiveness? Well, of course, it is to refuse the means that God has provided for us to be saved. It is to deny the only way we can be forgiven, to turn our back on God's purpose of redemption so perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. It's not as if someday we're lost. The Bible says, He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the tragedy of a fallen world, living in a state of unbelief, living in rebellion against God, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's ministry, as Jesus said, ultimately is to lift him up. And as he is lifted up, people will be drawn unto the Father, and this is brought out so powerfully in the closing hours that Jesus was with his disciples there in John 14, 15, and 16. After the traitor has departed, Jesus is now alone with the eleven. And it's now that he reveals to them very soon he will be leaving, but he'll not leave them alone. He will come again in the Spirit. And he said, because he's going back to the Father, the works that he has been doing, they will also be able to do. That's an intriguing passage. How could the church do something greater than Jesus? Certainly not in preaching or teaching or working miracles. But I can see at least one work that was greater in extent than what Jesus had done. At Pentecost, 3,000 cry out, they want to be saved. That's more in one day than Jesus had accumulated in over three years of active ministry. But you see, Jesus had not come himself to evangelize the whole world. His mission was to offer the sacrifice. And on his way to Calvary, he focused his attention upon making some disciples, giving them 
the inspiration of his life, teaching them the truth of the gospel, and then sending them forth to impart to others what they had learned. No, he was not to reap the harvest. That would be the joy and responsibility of his church. And indeed, this would be possible, he said, because you will do these greater works, for when I go back to the Father, I'm going to ask him to send another comforter, counselor, even the Spirit of truth. And he will take the things of mine, and he will show them to you. He won't talk about himself. He will glorify me. And this supremely is what the Spirit of God is doing in this age. He's showing the glory of Christ, who is the very Word of God speaking to us in flesh so that we can see Him in our own identity. And He, Jesus said, will not leave you, He'll not forsake you. He will be like another person beside you. Alas Paraklatos, another counselor. There will be the difference in person, of course, the difference between the visible Word in Christ and the invisible presence in the Spirit. But in quality, in character, in holiness, in power, the Spirit of God is also the Spirit of Christ. He's not talking about a theory or a doctrine. He's talking about a person, one that you have come to see in character in the person of Jesus Christ. And all that you have seen in Jesus now is in the character of the Holy Spirit who has come to take Christ's place to reign now as Lord of His church, waiting the day of the return of Christ in the clouds of heaven. So you can see why Jesus told His disciples to tarry until this promise became a reality. He's not talking now about something that will be experienced only in heaven. No, having given the command to go and disciple the nations, He concludes with this promise. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The promise of the Great Commission. And we live in that age today to know in Christ all that Christ has given to His people. And the Spirit will lead us into that truth. The presence of Christ is not a reward of heaven. It is the joyous experience of every disciple fulfilling the Great Commission. And indeed, this is the only way we can make disciples. The tragedy is we might seek in our own power, our own intelligence, to do it in our own strength. I suppose there's no temptation more subtle nor more deadly because 
If you would take the principles that we have seen or tried to observe in the life of our Lord, they make sense. There's nothing new here. I haven't said anything to this point that's different than you could read in the books of leadership or developing potential in any successful business because these principles work. They're common sense. In the business world, if you don't succeed, if you don't reproduce, you go broke. Unfortunately, in the church, we limp along even when nothing's happening. And nostalgia and the connections that we have together as a people seem to keep us moving even when we don't see great fulfillment of the commission. Oh, nothing is more tragic than to take principles of success and use them for your own advantage in building your empire, establishing your reputation for your glory. And I have to say, if you have good sense, if you have an attractive personality, and you apply yourself diligently and work hard, you can succeed and likely make a fortune and lose your soul. That's why we must recognize this can only happen by the Holy Spirit. Many of the things that I have said thus far you will find disgust in other religions. They try to serve. They try to be helpful. They build their relationships. They encourage obedience. But it's in the flesh. And this is the adversary that we often have to confront even in religious systems around us that are seeking by human initiatives and human works to earn God's favor. Denying, of course, His grace. Denying the work of redemption revealed at Calvary when Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead. This is the inevitable deception of Islam and many other religions that, that try to detract from the love of God so perfectly revealed at the cross. No, just getting ahead, just getting a crowd, just earning a good reputation, and even religious respect is no indication that you are fulfilling the Great Commission. It's only by the Spirit of God imparting the life of Christ Himself in our worthless lives, making a new creation that we can go forth and do His work. For God's work can only be done in His power. And we should cherish for every disciple the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised the disciples and told them to tarry, go back to Jerusalem, go back to that upper room where earlier He opened so powerfully that closing message on the Spirit's work within them. And you'd stay there until the Spirit of God comes upon you in power. And so, as He instructed them, 
after he ascended back into heaven, after they saw him disappear in the clouds, they went back to that room and waited. It was during the feast of Pentecost, the feast when people bring in the first fruits of the harvest and lay them on the altars. It was also a time to commemorate their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. And people from all over the country were bringing in their first fruits. At the very time, there were 120 followers now that had gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. And they were waiting. There's no anxiety that's evident here. No one seems to be in a hurry. No one is wringing their hands. In fact, little is recorded of that meeting in the first chapter of Acts. We do know that they realized that they needed to find a replacement for the disobedient disciple Judas. And so they decided upon a person that would be a worthy re replacement uh, for, for Judas. And they did this because they felt the Spirit of God speaking through David had told them that this was necessary indicating they were very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, even to this little detail. I can imagine, though, in that same meeting, there were some other words spoken by the disciples. I can imagine Peter standing up, tears streaming down his face, confessing how he had denied his Lord three times. I can imagine James and John turning to their friends and confessing how they had been so proud, self-seeking, wanting to sit on the right and left hand of the throne of God. And they asked for forgiveness. Oh, I don't know everything that was recorded, but I can imagine they got it out of their system, whatever it was, because the Bible tells us after 10 days they were together in one mind, in one accord. Oh, what power when you can get that many people together in one spirit, in one mind. And there they're sitting together. Like some of you are sitting today, waiting in confidence that the promise of God will be fulfilled. When suddenly there was a sound of a rushing wind that seemed to sweep through the building and out through the open windows across the earth. And then it seemed like a ball of fire literally came through the ceiling and then separated so that a flame sat upon the head of each person present. It's interesting. The same word is used of Jesus when it tells us when he returned to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the throne. And now His Spirit comes and sits on the head of every member of the church. The King always sits. The people stand, which is a way of saying that the Lord now in His Spirit has come to take charge of His church. He is in control. Every member of the church, not just a few people, 
that look pious and that appear to have special gifts and offices. Every member of the church, the body now of Jesus Christ, has this evidence of the Spirit's power resting upon their head. And they begin to go out into the world and declare the wonderful works of God. And indeed, as we are told, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And not just there, nine other times at different intervals in the unfolding narrative of the book of Acts, the Spirit is mentioned. Mentioned more in that book than any other book of the Bible about 50 times. So some people call it the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because He is the one who can accomplish God's purpose. Now the redeeming work has been completed at Calvary. But the Spirit has come to make effective in our lives and in the lives of others who will open their heart to Christ. That same promise that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's the age in which we live. And it's no wonder that the book of Acts closes without really any conclusion. Have you noticed that? It just breaks off virtually in the middle of a sentence, leaving the impression there's still more to be said. And indeed there is, because we are continuing to live in that age of the harvest the age of the Spirit. And it will continue until the Great Commission is fulfilled and disciples are finally gathered from all the nations. This is what the Spirit is doing today. And we are living now in probably the greatest harvest season the church has ever known. But we're also in the time of our greatest struggle our adversary has pulling out all of the stops, bringing in heavy artillery against the church. We are in a spiritual struggle with powers and principalities that reach into the highest places. It is a war that we're engaging. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has won the victory. And we can go forth in that assurance that He has all authority. We need not weaken. We need not cow before the difficulties that lie ahead, but rather in full confidence that the Spirit is here with us. We rejoice, for God is completing that purpose when He made us in the beginning to know Him, to love Him, and to rejoice in Him forever. This is the first question in the old catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our joy is not in herself. It's in Him who is worthy, whom all heaven adores, that will never cease in the praise of the Lamb who has won the victory. They're singing now, they're rejoicing around the throne, and we have every reason to join in that praise. The praise that will only grow sweeter 
and more glorious as the aeons of eternity unfold. And we will continue to celebrate, even as we continue to share together the wonders of God's grace in our lives around the throne of Him whom we worship, our loving Savior and our Lord. Oh, what a way to live every day in that lifestyle that will never end, the lifestyle of the Great Commission. Are you living in that lifestyle today? If not, you're living below your privilege, for this is what Jesus died for. And it's what the Holy Spirit has come to make a reality in the lives of all His disciples. And Father, I pray that as this message goes out across the earth in this little technical contraption call a DVD, that somehow by your Spirit the message will come through. Our efforts are so weak. But, oh, Father, you can take that which is nothing and make it something. And you're able to do beyond what we can even ask or think. And so we dare to believe that you can take this attempt at teaching, overrule the gloss, cancel out the errors, but bring forth that truth which you want to preserve, which is worth keeping. And by your Holy Spirit, apply it to the hearts of those that listen and make it come alive. Be pleased to make the Great Commission a reality in the life of all those who hear these words. And give us a heart together to praise the Lord, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels your blood so freely shed for me. I pray in the precious name of Jesus, our loving Savior, and our Lord. Amen.